Excellent singing. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. I do want to encourage you to be back this evening if you were able to join us. Uh, we've been going through a series of uh, called Biblical Counseling and helping to understand how to deal with issues maybe in your own life or helping others. And tonight we're going to look at specifically the topic of guilt. Uh, how do we deal with guilt in our lives? Because I think the Bible has the answers to that problem. Luke chapter 22. In our Sunday school class this morning, I'm teaching the Sunday school class on marriage, and uh, we were talking about communication and how to deal with conflict in communication. I think conflict exists in any uh, part of life, and so ask yourself this question, how do I deal with conflict? How do I deal, when, deal with things when it seems as if I'm losing? Um, how, how do I get through those situations? Many times what people do is they handle it incorrectly. Many people will avoid conflict. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't, I don't want to have conflict, and so I just avoid any time, and I get stressed out any time there's any sort of situation like that. Sometimes conflict isn't necessarily bad in the sense that sometimes it helps us draw closer to God, and so to avoid it means avoiding God's working in our lives. Some people fight back, they retaliate, uh, they get revenge, they seek to hurt the person who is causing conflict in their life. Sometimes people hide, uh, they do what is best to avoid um, any sort of uh, conflict, and so they just hide. Some people express pride, they never admit they're wrong, they're never willing to think maybe there's a problem that they have in their lives. I heard a uh, a story about two men. This was a small village in a small country, and uh, they were in a terrible dispute. Uh, it was a dispute over land, and um, and they couldn't resolve it. They couldn't come to a conclusion on what should happen, and so they decided to go to the what was the guy who was kind of the town wise man. You know, he was the town sage, and so the first man goes to the sage's house, and he says. Uh, he, he tells him all that took place. He tells him uh, his version of the events and what took place. And when he finished, the, the sage looked at him and just said, you're absolutely correct. The man felt, great, I'm good. I, he left and he went his own way. The next night, the other man on the other side of the dispute came and uh, he told his side of the story, which was completely opposite. And, and he finished telling the story and the sage uh, looked at him and responded and said, you're absolutely correct. Great. He left happy. Afterwards, the, wife, uh, the sage's wife came up to him and said, you know, you handled that wrong. You told, you had two men come and tell you two different stories, and yet you responded the same to both of them. Both of them you responded by saying, you're absolutely correct. The sage paused and he looked at his wife and he said, you're absolutely correct. I think we see how that person responded. In Luke chapter 22, look at verse 47. 
we see a conflict arise. And we've been looking at the defining moments of a servant and looking at Peter and how, how did God make Peter into the man that he became and the servant he became. It took a lot of process. And we looked at um, a number of different areas. We looked last week at the betrayal of Peter and how he turned his back on even knowing Christ. And, and before that, we looked at the story when Jesus predicted his that he was going to have to suffer and die, and, and, and Peter said, no, that, that's not going to happen. And what was Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. We see over and over again how God used these circumstances to mold Peter. In Luke chapter 22, this actually falls right in the middle of the two scriptures we looked at last week. But it says in verse 47, I'll read and you can follow along. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them, uh, one of them struck a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords, as against a robber with swords and club? When I was with you day after day in the temple, did you not lay hands? You did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. Let's pray. God, I thank you. For this passage, and I pray it'll help us to understand it. Lord give, Lord, give me clarity as I speak, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Jesus here is dealing with a conflict. It is roughly midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been taking time alone to pray. The, the agonizing prayer that he went through in preparation for the heaviness of the cross that was on him. His closest followers were acting as if they didn't care, probably really oblivious. He had told them what was going to happen, but really oblivious to the true weight of what was about to take place. He returns from praying alone again to find them sleeping as he had uh, on numerous occasions, and he finds them sleeping and he rebukes them. And while he's in the midst of rebuking them, the passage here tells us while he's speaking, speaking to them, the uh, the, the disciples look out and they see in the distance uh, the flickering of lights as a group of individuals, they didn't know who it was at that time, but as the group of individuals come across the Kidron Valley and, and, and come into the garden. And they're led by one of their own. A man by the name of Judas Iscariot who had turned and had, had uh, betrayed Christ for just a little bit of money. This all happened so quickly. For the disciples, I, I think it was a scary moment. and It was a brief conversation that Christ had with, with Judas and a, a kiss on the cheek by Judas. And uh, the soldiers stepped forward to take away Jesus. And in the confusion and the darkness, Peter knows he has to act. Remember, we, we talked about last week how Peter said, Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny you even know me. And Peter said, no, it's not going to happen. Maybe everyone else will, but I won't. And so maybe in that moment of trying to, to prevent that from taking place, he responds. And Peter steps out and he grabs his sword. He was not a skilled swordsman, obviously. 
And so he swings wildly, wildly, aiming not at anything in particular, and the sword finds its mark, not probably as Peter intended. And he had hoped maybe that by doing this, maybe it would scare everyone off, but I don't think that worked. Maybe he hoped that the other disciples would join in and, and, and get involved in the battle, and maybe it would have worked, but it didn't because Jesus steps in. And Peter's wild swing merely cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, and, and no doubt that when that happened, the servant uh, put, would have fell down in agony and pain to the ground, screaming loud, and not to be gory and gross, but I'm sure after cutting off the ear that the, there was blood just coming out profusely, and it's all, uh, it's all over. And the soldiers, I, I believe this happened instantaneously, because if you were there and if you would have seen that happen, I'm sure the soldiers probably quickly brought out their swords ready to strike Peter down. Before things got out of hand, Jesus steps forward and grabs the ear and heals the man. The soldiers probably seeing that happen step back. Scripture tells us in other places that they actually did step back in fear. And just like that, in that moment, that crisis is over. This must have made an impact on the disciples and the followers of Christ because this is a story that appears in all four Gospels. It has slight variation because as you understand, the Gospels are a, a retelling of an account uh, and, and so often it's from the perspective of the one telling it. And so we see different uh, uh, parts of the story appear in different places. Only John tells us that it was Peter that struck the sword. We read here in Luke, it doesn't tell us it was Peter, it just says one of the followers. Only John tells us that the man who was, whose ear was cut off was a man by the name of Malchus. He was a servant of the high priest and, and he was there and probably not even a, any, a soldier himself of any kind. Only Luke tells us here, he's the only one that tells us that the ear was healed. So some have brought into question whether it was an act that actually took place or whether it was uh, something that only Luke concluded because it, uh, it didn't really happen. Obviously we know it's in Scripture, so it's valid, but even beyond that, I believe that if, if it wouldn't have been healed, what would have taken place next probably would have been that Peter himself would have been either killed or arrested himself, and that didn't happen. Probably the healing took place, just as Scripture says. We know that for a fact. We think about what happened that night. The betrayal, the arrest that took place, and later on, all the things that were happening. Uh, sometimes this miracle uh, does not get the attention that maybe it should. But I believe the disciples never forgot what happened to Malchus that night. It seems so important that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all included it. It was something that was a story that the early church talked about as well. No doubt it contains a lesson for us. And as most of these lessons, I've been focusing on Peter and his response, and I want to, uh, I will touch on that, but I want to focus on Christ and his response primarily today. How did Christ react when all was lost? How did Christ react in the midst of conflict that did not seem to be going His way? 
What do we do when our dreams and our desires and those things that seem right disappear? And for Peter, he looked and he saw everything that he thought was right and everything that he thought was good and everything he thought was going to happen was about to fall apart as he saw the soldiers coming his way. So he responded in a way that was not what God wanted. So I want to look at, in the next few moments, I want to look at several important responses, several important answers that we can give in response to how to handle conflict. The first one is we respond properly to conflict by refusing to give in to emotional anger. I think we can easily understand Peter's desire to fight back, don't we? I mean, in the confusion of the late night arrest, he saw his Lord being threatened. And that, that was not going to be something he was going to stand by do. And so he decided to fight back. From a human perspective, can you blame him? Can you uh, understand that? And so he grabbed, one of, uh, he grabbed his sword and he takes a wild swing and he cuts off the ear of the servant. <laughs> Obviously he meant more to do that. I don't think that was his aim. I don't think he was swinging for the ear. But he was not skilled. And maybe Malchus ducked or something, but that's where he got him. In, in his fear, in his anger, in his overconfidence, and in his desperation, Peter lashed out at the nearest target possible, wounding him, but not killing him, which was probably his intention. You know, everything about this story, from a human perspective, makes absolute perfect sense. I mean, can you hardly blame him for thinking this? Can you hardly blame any of the disciples for thinking, it's time that we fight? I mean, because they've been following the Messiah, the King, and, and so maybe this is time where we step up and we fight. And so it makes logical sense. And it makes logical sense that Peter's the first one to do it. As we see, he is often the volatile, emotional, uh, driven leader in every situation that we see the disciples in. So he generally acts first. He, He generally acts without thinking. But at this point, we have to remember the words that would uh, years later be said by, by James when he said this, Knowing this, my beloved brethren, but every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Slow to anger. How many of us are good at that? I mean, honestly, raise your hand if you say here you're slow to anger. Either you're embarrassed to raise your hand or we understand that there's a very small slice of human, humanity that can actually say that. So when we understand that, we see here from this passage in James, what does he say? That your anger and God's righteousness can never seem to coexist. When you find yourself getting angry, you have to ask yourself why. And if Peter would have stopped and took the time to think and ask himself why, he may have responded differently. Uh, But ask yourself this question is, when you are angry, what is it you are afraid of? say, well, that doesn't make sense. What do you mean by that? What is it? Because I believe that anger is, is a moment of struggling in your faith and struggling to actually believe because I, uh, most of our anger stems from fear. Fear that, that we don't know what's going to happen. Fear really ultimately because we lose control. So we lash out in anger. And most of our fear comes from that perception that we're losing control. And stop and think about it for a moment. As long as we're in the driver's seat, as long as we're in control, as long as things are going our way, as long as things are exactly how we think they are, rarely do we get angry. 
but let things begin to spin out of control, and that's what was happening for Peter, spin out of control as they did that night, and fear begins to take over, and it's only a short jump from fear to anger, and uncontrolled anger, and sudden anger. And for Peter, that's what he did. And, and, and Jesus did not respond that way. We see that Jesus, when he responded in, in anger and, and did not sin, Scripture tells us it was because uh, God's word was being violated. That's not why Peter responded. That's not why Peter acted. Peter uh, understood that. And so we respond properly when we choose to not give in to fear, when we uh, allow ourselves to not give in to uncontrolled anger. And how often do you find yourself that way? You're in a conflict and the first response is anger. Well, maybe it's not a visual explosion, maybe it's a, but it's an anger inside and we need to respond properly. Secondly, we respond properly to conflict by choosing to lose rather than winning the wrong way. This is an interesting thought. Losing is not a popular thought. That's why there's not a lot of, you know, Bears fans, I guess. I was just seeing if anyone's awake. Losing is not a popular idea. I am a very competitive person by nature. I hate to lose anything we do. And uh, my wife and I first started dating. She saw that all the time. And we had much conflict because of that. And I had to learn... Uh, you know, I had to learn that if she beats me in something, it's okay. I did not think it was okay. I had a problem with it every time because I'm competitive. It's, it's definitely uh, and not a very American concept to lose. There's a famous quote by uh, General George Patton where he said this, Americans love a winner. American will not tolerate a loser. And I believe that's true. We all want to be on the winning team, don't we? There seems, it seems something very un-American. Uh, we just got through the Olympics, and, and if you watch any Olympics, you'd watch an event, and there would be an Olympian and uh, American in it, the, the event, and if they didn't win, we'd be like, what a disappointment. <laughs> and uh, Because that's the way we are as Americans, but I believe that's the way we are as human beings. We don't want to lose, and that's precisely what the followers of Jesus sometimes are called to do, is to lose. And in Christ's kingdom, the values of this world seem to be turned upside down. Let me give you examples of this. Scriptures that we can look at. First of all, there's scriptures that say this. He that would save his own life must what? Lose it. Take up your cross and follow me. What, it, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? He who would be first among you must be servant of all. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life saves it over and over again. And we see in Scripture, it seems at times where things are just flipped upside down and where we as believers have to come to the point where we're saying we're willing to lose in order to win. And that's what Jesus did. In fact, that's what Jesus responded. If you look in, uh, you don't need to turn there, but Matthew, the, the parallel passage to this story in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So that's not how we're going to do it, Peter. We're going to put the swords away, and yes, it may seem that we're be, being defeated. And yes, it may seem that the enemy has got us. 
Peter, you've got to trust. You know, brute force does not advance Christ's kingdom. We cannot accomplish God's work by bullying people into submission. When we try that approach, when we try to do that, it may produce short-term results, but it always backfires in the end because the appeal to brute force means we don't really believe in God. If we did, we wouldn't try to take matters into our own hands, but we do that so often, don't we? Man, as parents, that's a struggle. We want to take matters into our own hands, and we want to, we want to take our kids and conform them into God's image, and that's not how it is. And Peter so wanted to win that it was win at all costs and he took it his own, into his own hands and Jesus said, don't do that. Could Jesus have taken uh, matters into his own hands? Yes, he could have. In fact, the very next verse in verse 53, what does he said to Peter? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? 12 legions would be at least 72,000 angels. Do you think 72,000 angels could have handled those measly amount of soldiers there that day? Absolutely. And that was Jesus' point. Do you not think I could handle this? Sometimes, Peter, we need to lose to win. As Christians, sometimes that's hard for us to do. But if... Jesus had that sort of power at his disposal. Why didn't he use it? If Jesus could have called 72,000 angels to come down and just kill them on the spot, and by the way, he didn't even need angels. He could have done it himself. Why didn't he do it? He tells us in the very next verse, he says this, but how then should the Scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? He says, Peter, if I would have responded that way, And God's plan wouldn't have been fulfilled. You know, I don't blame Peter for not fully understanding what Jesus was doing. I mean, think about just the circumstances. It's late. It's after midnight. I'm sure he's tired. He's distraught. He's confused. He's angry. He's worn out. He's upset. And in despair, he thinks he has to do something, anything that will rescue Jesus. But the reality is Jesus doesn't need his help. The reality is Jesus, and this is the the really hard part for us to grasp, Jesus didn't want to be rescued. Jesus can take full care of himself in what seemed to be a chaotic series of events turns out to be the plan of God. Turns out to be exactly what God was unfolding for the salvation of the world. And when evil seems to win, Christ calmly submits, knowing that in the end, God's will must be done. Author J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, he did not die because he could not help it. He did not suffer because he could not escape. All the soldiers of Pilate's army could not have taken him if he had not been willing to be taken. They could not have hurt a hair on his head if he had not given them permission. Remember, there was an earlier time in in, in Christ's ministry where he's, he's teaching, and remember uh, the Jews began to get very agitated. Remember this story? They began to get very agitated, and the Bible tells us that they picked up rocks and they began to desire to stone him, and what happened? It said, and suddenly Jesus was gone from their midst. If Jesus wanted to, he could have solved this problem, but he didn't. 
And in our losing of our power, our significance, our place in this world, our fame and our fortune, and all we hold dear, we, we try to hang on to it and we want to win, but sometimes what, what Jesus was saying is sometimes we have to lose. We have to give up of ourselves in order for the cause of Christ to win. And when we try to hang on to those things, we miss the blessings that God has for us. And Peter was missing them. And we respond properly to conflict when we uh, uh, lose instead of winning the wrong way. Thirdly, we respond properly to conflict by relying completely on Christ's power rather than our own strength. Sometimes, and this kind of builds on the last point, sometimes we have to let go. How incredibly hard is that for most of us? Letting go doesn't mean giving up. I've had in times where, uh, in dealing with a parent who's struggling with a child, I'll say, you know, sometimes you have to let go, and they, and they take it the wrong way, and they say, well, does that mean I need to give up? No, not at all. It doesn't mean passively sitting by while the world takes advantage of us either. Letting go means this. Here's a uh, poem I heard many years ago. Letting go means giving up the right to always be in control. Letting go means admitting that you aren't calling all the shots. Letting go means that you choose not to manipulate others. Letting go means admitting that you don't have all the answers. Letting go means yielding your emotions to the Lord. Letting go means resigning your position as Lord of this universe. Could God have turned things out differently for Jesus? Obviously. Because he's God. He could have arranged the circumstances any way he chose, but God ordained that his son would die. I I love, and this is going to sound strange, I absolutely love, and yet at the same time, I, I, I have a hard time with this passage. In Isaiah, when it's predicting the death of the Messiah, it says, yet it was his, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Contemplate that for a moment. But it was God's divine plan that He was going to take His Son, His only Son, His perfect Son, His righteous Son, and it was His plan all along from the beginning of time that He was going to crush Him. Why? For you and for me, Jesus had to die. Ponder that for a moment and you will know why Jesus didn't fight back against the soldiers. He took it. He knew that without His death, the whole world would be lost. So to serve God's greater good, He endured the indignity and the hatred of an angry mob. He endured the false accusations. He endured a brutal beating and the shame of the death on the cross. Because he understood that there, was no, there would be no resurrection without a crucifixion. And there's no shortcuts to the glory of God. And Peter's wild attack, motivated no doubt by a love, a desperate love for his Savior, a desperate love for his Lord, meant that he didn't really understand that Jesus had to die. 
And that's why he relied on his sword to protect the Son of God. There's an author who's written commentaries, a man by the name of Thomas uh, Whitelaw, and describing Peter's folly and Peter's foolishness and Peter's uh, desire to attack, he said uh, he gave five letter, you letters, or you words, excuse me, to describe it. He said, first of all, it was unnecessary. It was, it was unnecessary. It didn't, uh, if, if, if God can command 72,000 angels and all of heaven besides that, he didn't need Peter's puny sword. But yet Peter responded that way. Peter's response was un, unchristian. In the attack of Peter, Peter contradicted Jesus' own teaching when he said in, in Matthew chapter 5, he said, when someone attacks you, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to turn the other cheek. It was, it was unreasonable. Even if Peter had prevented the arrest, it would accomplish nothing of value. Nothing at all. Our goal is to convert our opponents through love, not to coerce them through force. And Peter missed that. It was unwise. Uh, Peter's vain attempt to protect Jesus would have prevented and hindered the Father's purpose in bringing salvation to the world. And then finally, it was unsafe. I mean, Peter's sudden att- action called attention to himself and made it easier for him to be identified later. And I believe that's probably why the story we looked at last week where Peter denied Christ, it was probably might have been how he got recognition. Because someone saw him do that. And his attempt only maybe possibly boomeranged back to hurt himself. We look and we see Peter responded because Peter was not willing to rely on Christ, but he had to rely on his own power. How often are we doing that? Relying on God's power is what we need to do. And then finally, we respond properly to conflict by extending Christ's healing love to those who have hurt us. After Jesus rebuked Peter, he performs a most unexpected miracle. Look if you get, again, if you will, at Luke chapter 22 and look at verse 51. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This is totally unexpected because Jesus just healed a man who had joined the group that had come to arrest him. He must have happened quickly, as I said. Peter attacks, the ear flies off, blood squirts everywhere, and Jesus rebukes Peter, and then he reaches out in his hand and he touches the bloody place where the ear had been, and immediately it is healed. And I think Peter did what we all do when we're hurt and we're scared. He struck out in anger and confusion. It seemed like a natural thing to do. I mean, what does the world tell us when someone hits us? Hit them back. What does the world tell us when someone hurts us? Get even. Make someone pay. I'm amazed how many times I hear even Christians that when they respond, they respond that same way. I'm amazed how many times in, in, in marriage counseling, how many times that's the, the, the issue. Well, they hurt me. I'm going to hurt them back. However, Jesus did not fight back. In fact, Jesus did the exact opposite. He healed and he loved. I think this story shows us the folly of retaliation. You know, what did Peter do? 
Think about this for a moment. Who did he attack? Scripture tells us he attacked the servant of the high priest. How did that help? He swung wildly. But... Uh, by doing this, by cutting off, it did not stop them from arresting Jesus. In fact, if Jesus had not healed the man, it would only further enrage the Jewish authorities and it made them even more upset. But in trying to make things better, he was actually making things worse. And Jesus did what only the Son of God could have done. In a moment of pain, in a moment of hurting, he reached down and he healed and he showed love. And that brings us to the final words of Jesus before he was arrested and we find those in John chapter 18 and when in the parallel passage in John it says this Jesus said to Peter put your sword into its sheath shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me it's an amazing thought that Jesus was expressing that cup is, uh, is, is also talked about in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying to God and asking that this cup be taken away. What was this cup? It's the cup of suffering. It's the cup uh, of, of the wrath of God that was going to be poured on Jesus on the cross. And he says to Peter, he says, put away your sword because what I need to do next is ordained by God. Jesus was always in charge of the situation. And and it's an amazing thought, even in the midst of what's taking place here, soldiers, uh, high priests and everything, even in that situation, Jesus was fully in charge. Because he knew what had to take place. He knew that he had to drink the cup of suffering. Uh, I love what the hymn, How Great Thou Art, says. It says this, And when I think of God, His Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And here we see the scene, and Peter lashes out, and and the scene ends, and and what happens? Jesus is, is taken away in the night as a common criminal, tied up and forced to go before his accusers. His disciples flee. The Bible does tell us that Peter follows afar off and just a little while later denies he even knows Christ. In less than 12 hours, Jesus, from that point, Jesus would hang on a tree. But I often think about also the, the man who walked away from that scene, rubbing the side of his head, wondering what just happened to his ear. No, this is a forgotten miracle sometimes because of all that takes place next. It happens to be the last miracle of, of, of a bodily cure that Jesus ever performed. It's just a tiny image of life. It's a midnight encounter. It's a small miracle that was on its way to a massive miracle, a huge miracle of God. But in this miracle, I think we see the true revelation of the heart of Jesus. In this story, we see Jesus, how He treats His enemy. When they come for Him, He doesn't resist. When they hurt Him, He heals them. He receives their attack and is led away to die for the very man who put Him to death. He doesn't use His divine power to escape. 
He only uses his divine power to heal. And just a few hours later, the sin of mankind was laid on him. If you're here today and you're not saved, you cannot blame Christ. Because he loved you. And while that miracle that he performed of reattaching a man's ear in an instant is, is, a, is a big miracle, it pales in comparison to the fact of the miracle that though I deserve to be the one that was on the cross, Jesus took my place, a perfect individual, and yet he died for me. If you're here today, he desires to pardon you of your sins as well. If you will just acknowledge them and accept him. If you're here today and you're a Christian, how are you responding to conflict? Because Christ gave us an example. Maybe you're in conflict now. Are you showing love? Are you trying to produce healing? Are you still fighting against God? challenge you to evaluate your own lives and realize what a Christ, what a salvation he brings. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the work of the cross. We're thankful for what Christ did for us. Lord, though we deserve death, yet Christ died. And in this story, we see a glimpse of his love We see a glimpse of his understanding. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to, uh, as we deal with conflict, constantly keep aware of how Christ dealt with it and and respond in the same way he did. And respond with his power, not with our own. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to show love to people around us. Lord, if there is any here that haven't trusted in you, haven't placed their faith in you, Lord, we know that they are lost without you. Lord, we look at these disciples and we see the story of Peter and how you used this circumstance even so to, to mold him into your image. We know at the same time, this same circumstance was another reason that was dro- drove uh, Judas to suicide. And we know that Judas went to a, to a point in his life when he uh, felt there was no hope and he missed the hope of the cross. Lord, and there's many people in, in our world today who are missing the hope of the cross. And Lord, if there's any here today, I pray that you help them to see it and to turn to you. Lord, help us as believers to see the example of Christ and respond likewise. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen.